9, verse 33. We're coming into the next section that goes from chapter 9, verse 33, to chapter 10, verse 52. And Mark's purpose in this is to give you the distinguishing marks of the followers of Jesus. So in my view, as we look at this section, the whole section is devoted to what distinguishes us as disciples of Jesus. Okay, we've, we've looked at before um, what kind of king we have and, and what his followers are to be like, and now he, he seems to double down on, um, on what it means. What are the distinguishing marks? What should be the marks that set us apart as disciples of Jesus? Now, over the centuries, there, there have been many attempts to come up with some kind of distinguishing marks, and typically they're not what the Bible says. Um, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, um, the distinguishing marks of disciples were uh, we don't smoke and we don't drink, we don't go to dances or movies, we don't play cards, unless it's Old Maid or Rook or something, but never with regular playing. What else did we have? I'm asking both the, I'm asking all three of you. Oh yeah, yeah right. Uh, disciples of Jesus do not have long hair or beards and mustaches. Always a dress and never blue jeans either for the guys. Oh, you don't pierce your ears. You legalists, you had more rules than we did. <laughs> but I mean, those, those are the sorts of things that we grew up with. They said, this is what Christians do and this is what they don't. And this is a distinguishing mark. And the point is, in all of those type of things, when you try to come up with your own, they typically uh, contradict what the Bible says, and, or they normally ignore what the Bible says. But Jesus himself, in this particular portion of the gospel, gives us real marks of discipleship. Okay? So here's the first one. So this goes from chapter 9, verse 33, through chapter 10, verse 52. This whole section, he tells us, all these things that I think these are, these are distinguishing marks, okay? I think this is the section that tells us that. All right? So the first one is found in chapter 9, verse 33 through verse 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay? What is the path to greatness here? What does Jesus say is the path to greatness? Here's the first distinction mark. Disciples of Jesus seek greatness. They do seek greatness. But how? What's the path to greatness according to Jesus here? What is it? What's the path to greatness? What does he say is the path to greatness? Yeah, humility, denying self, um, putting others in the line, and 
serving one another. If you want to be first, if you want to be at the head of the line in God's eyes, you strive to be in the last position in line. Make sure everyone else gets in line before you do, okay? We have to serve others, looking at self uh, as everyone else's slave, all right? Now, he's going he's gonna to hit on this again in chapter 10, but um, here's what he says. Um, you, you make sure everyone else is ahead of you in the line, and you, make, and you serve everyone as their slave. Now, at first, that seems unrealistic, because who's ever going to argue about who's going to be greatest? No one does that. We don't do that, right? Um, we, you know, I've never heard anybody argue with someone else, I'm greater than you in the kingdom. Um, and, uh, you know, but in our thinking, and sometimes in our conversation, we give ourselves and others rankings. All right? I mean, we do do it to a certain degree. We may not, well, yeah, we even argue about these things, but who's, who's the greatest? The Jan, you know, uh, we say to, about this young woman, she, she's a teacher and she married a janitor. Can you believe that? Um, and we even do it in our Christian circles, right? Pastor or elder, right? Who's greater, elders or deacons, right? Um, you know, pastor or, you know, just pastor or the one who cleans the toilets at church. You know, that's, I mean, that's amazing when you think about that. I mean, the, the, the hierarchy we have, right? Um, frankly, this, to me, there's an argument about it. The person who cleans the church is, is the greatest. I don't know. In our church, if you walk through our church, Monday morning, it looks like someone had run a herd of cattle through there. I mean, you know, here's the thing that gets me. You walk through and you see like a, a hair on the chair, you know, and all the junk that's laying around. It's like, well, you know, what does it take to clean that up? I tell you what, it takes a lot to clean that stuff up. But, I mean, that's what we do. Who's greater, pastor or the person who cleans church? We have these rankings in our head. We just do. Um, Big one now. Okay, here's one. Um, whether you go to college or not, right? That's a biggie. That's a biggie right now. And our educational system is such that it's just saying, well, man, we've got to get as many people to college as we can. Um, let's get everybody prepared for college because we don't, you know, what, if you don't have a college degree, then what? So, um, you know, CEO or press operator. Right? Um, now, here's the deal. Jesus is not talking so much about positions as he is about attitudes and actions. Um, so the point he's making here is when are you the greatest? When everyone's applauding you um, or when you serve other people? Right? And when, you're recogni- when you are recognized or you're serving in a capacity where no one recognizes you. Who's the greatest? That's what he's driving at. And then he involves a child in the discussion. Okay? He involves a child in the discussion. Um, children were the lowest on the social ladder. Okay? Um, thankfully, because of the influence of Christianity, that's not so much the case anymore. Well, it still is, to a certain degree. Abortion is very, very... 
a very big thing because children are low, right? They're not a high priority. Um, so he brings a child in. Child, the children are the lowest in the, in the social pecking order, the very lowest. And he says, you've got to serve in such a way that children are also your masters. You're a slave of everyone, including children. If you receive a child, right, um, you've received me. So you, you can't exclude the lowliest form from your service because that involves welcoming Jesus and his father. Um, now look, we have to start thinking very specifically here, right? I think we need to think specifically, how am I serving? How am I a slave of everyone? Um, you've got to see yourself as everyone else's slave. Um, you know, I learned this mostly from my wife, from Becca. She used to, I, I, early in my ministry, um, you know, I remember she'd answer the phone and say, hey, how are you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? Right? That's the first thing out of her mouth. And that really struck me. And this is the teaching of Jesus, I think, that's had the most impact on me. How, you, how are you the slave of everyone? You've got to start thinking specifically. Does the spending of my money reflect that I'm a slave of everyone? Um, your plans for the week, does that reflect the fact that you're a slave? Um, the use of your time, okay? So, I mean, let's ask questions. For example, how as an employer can you be a servant of those that you employ? Let's think about that. How can you be a servant of the people that you employ? You're the boss, you set the direction, you tell people what to do, and that's fine. It doesn't mean you abdicate your responsibilities. But the question is, how then are you a slave of all your employees? Yes. I like minions, Emily. I like that. Go ahead. All right, I think that's a, that's a great example. No. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. I mean, you know, I'm sure all of us had bosses. I'm sure you have, Ryan, where you come to them and they say, well, solve it yourself, you knucklehead. That's not my business, right? Deal with it, right? So you're a servant that way. That's good. How about how do we serve our wives as husbands? We're supposed to lead them. We're supposed to be, um, right? Our wives are to submit to us, but we're also to submit to them. We're to be their slaves. How, are we, how does that happen? How do we do that? To the three guys that are here. <laughs> right? A lot of it takes time and intentionality. I have these other things I can do to accomplish my own 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's good, Ryan. I like that. I like that. I, I, I think that's, um, I think that's really, really important. Because, right? Uh, let me see. Um, your wife has been home all day, and when you come home, I'm talking to all us guys here. You also, also, you women. And uh, they've been with the kids all day and they crave adult conversation and you come home, we come home, and we are tired. And we'd rather not talk. We've been talking all day, right? How do I serve my wife? Well, okay, I'm tired, but she wants to talk to an adult. All right, that's, that's one way, okay? How about this? How about this is the one that strikes me the most. This is the one that, that I think I've given a lot of thought to, and that is, how are you a slave to the people that serve you when you're in the hospital? Right? I've been in the hospital a few times for heart issues and, and things like that, and I've been, I had a stroke in 2016, and so I was in the hospital for a little bit of a, a, a period and it got, you know, it makes me think, how I'm supposed to be a slave of these people who are serving me. Uh, how, how can I do that? Have you ever thought about that? How are you a slave to the people who... So think about being a patient and thinking about being at a restaurant and a waitress is waiting on you. How are you a servant? How can I be a slave to these people? What would you say? Now, my sister-in-law, Deanna, probably could tell us a lot of how you could be a servant because she's a nurse. <laughs> All right? So how are you a servant in those situations? How are you a slave in those situations where people are serving you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Think about it. And we've got two nurses, and, and two of my kids are nurses, so I get all kinds of stories. But. But who are the crabbiest people in the world? The people in hospitals. They're always complaining. They're sick. They're complaining. They're griping, right? So be kind and be gracious. And don't get mad at them when your veins roll. Right? It's not their fault that your veins are going all over the place and they have to keep sticking you. You know? I... That's the one that strikes me. It's like you're getting mad at that nurse because your vein is hard to find. It's not her fault. Oh man. All right. Any anywhere anywhere else? How about the how about the waitress? How about the waitress? In both of those examples, it's so easy to think, what am I going to eat? What am I going to get? Or if you're in the hospital, it's a back stroke. What's going to happen to me? What's going to serve you? 
Yeah. 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 You know, I think about when I try to say thank you to every, every time they pour my coffee or whatever, fill my drink. I try to, try to say thank you. But, um, but here's the point. Jesus said that's the path to greatness. A distinguishing mark of a disciple is that they seek greatness by serving others. All right? Greatness in the kingdom means serving others. Um, now, let me just throw some practical things in there. Pastor gets a phone call. I gotta quit doing this, don't I? I have to start doing this. Pastor gets a, pastor gets a phone call and someone wants to talk to him and he says to his family, gotta go, right? Well, now here's the, here's the question. Okay, I gotta be a servant to this, to my family. And I gotta be a servant to the person who's calling. What do I do when there seems to be a conflict, right? It doesn't mean that you run out the door every time someone calls. This is what I've learned over 38 years. I've got also a family I have to serve. And so what I need to do in that kind of a situation is just, just ask questions and find out just how serious it is. Because I've got to serve both. But this, this group over here tends to maybe get the short shrift at times because you're always running off. And so you've got to... Um, you've got to think about things like that. How am I going to serve the best? This may be an emergency and you do have to go, but oftentimes it's not. You've got to figure that out. You've got to decide how I'm going to serve both, right? Um, Yeah, so there are times we have to ask questions. You still have to be a slave, but you've got to ask the questions and you've got to determine some of those things. Um, and so I think the challenge for us is what specifically do I need to change in order to reflect my status as a slave? I've got to keep thinking of myself as a slave. Okay, here's the next one. Um, disciples of Jesus must be inclusive, not exclusive. Verses 38 through 41 John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right, we have to be inclusive. Now, uh, Andy and I, my brother, and well, all four of us here grew up in a fundamentalist tradition in which the hallmarks seemed to be exclusion, right? 
exclusion. If you don't cross your T's or dot your I's exactly like we do, if you don't believe in a premillennial, pre-rapture return of Jesus, then you're just outside the pale. We cannot have anything to do with you. Um, you know, if you in, in any way suggest that alcohol is legitimately, can be legitimately consumed by Christians, well then obviously we can't have anything to do with you. And so there was this really emphasis on exclusion, not inclusion. But the question is, um, when do we include? When, when is that, when do we need to do that? Um, I think here, what we find here is Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus is where we draw the line. In what way? The last phrase gives us a lot of direction when it comes to this inclusive principle. Notice what he says. Um, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right? If someone offers to help you just because you belong to Jesus, he's for you. Right? Just be, on account of the fact that you belong to Jesus. When the going gets tough and people are more willing to abandon Christ's disciples and someone still wants to identify with you in Christ, then he's a disciple. When I say when the going gets tough, you could, because he talks about giving a cup of cold water. It's, a, it's the idea of things are difficult, but he's still going to do it because, because you belong to Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the dividing line. He may do some things differently. He may even believe a little differently, but he's one of us. And anyone who welcomes you because you belong to Jesus should be accepted. Um, Now, well, I keep picking on my brother and and Andy and Deanna, but, um, well, you guys are a wealth of stuff. On the mission field, I remember when you guys were on the mission field, and uh, how on the mission field the, the lines tend to not be as strong where, who we're going to associate with. Not because you abandoned Jesus, but because we're serving Jesus, but maybe you don't, but like we're in this alone. Us, you and us, we're in this. Am I right? Yeah. Um, uh, I've heard that from a lot of missionaries, Right? It's not that they let down their guard or they get really doctrinally sloppy. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when you're serving Jesus and there's no one else but you and them, and they really want to serve Jesus too, those lines that we draw here may not be as, as um, what's the word I want, pronounced. Um, what matters most is whether we both love Jesus and want his name exalted. Okay, questions. I'm sure that's going to raise some questions. Okay. All right. If I'd have said that in, in the church where I grew up, it might have been a little bit different. Andy? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. 
I think that's true. All right. Next section, verses 42 through 50. Here's another distinguishing mark of a disciple. Disciples of Jesus have to deal with sin. They have to deal with sin. Uh, 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay? He says we have to be vigilant against anything that could ever cause a young disciple or a new believer to sin. Okay? We will exercise caution and restraint around new believers. And God says he loves them so much that if you cause them to sin, it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. That's pretty strong language. <laughs> right? Um, so how do we see that operating? How do we see that happening? How are, what's a new believer like, and why do we need to be cautious? What do you think? We don't want to lead them into sin. How can we do that? How do we do that? So I've got to be willing to be very careful about sin with a new believer. Okay? Well, you tell me. What are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that's one of the avenues is our liberties, right? So I may think it's you know, it's okay have a beer now and then. But here I've got a young believer, right, who's come out of heavy drinking and everything. And um, to them, man, you cut, you cut it off there. No, I'm not going to do that. And, and they're really convinced of that. And then you do it and they start to doubt and that they can just go right down the tubes again, right? So that's one, I think that's one area that's especially the Apostle Paul, all right, in Romans 14 and 15. We have to be very, very, very careful about that. Okay? We have to be very, very careful about that. Yes, Ryan. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I'm going to have to write that one down, Ryan. I'll have to footnote you, though, whenever I say it. But uh, I think that's good. Like with children, we can exasperate them, right? You're not what we think you should be. 
They do dumb stuff, right? They haven't, they haven't learned, you know, you don't use hell as a swear word anymore. And they, they say it, it's like, what are you doing? Right? Instead of just coming alongside and gently helping them. All right? Um, but then he also says, you gotta be ruthless with sin in your own life. You gotta, you gotta be careful, you gotta deal with sin in terms of not leading these young believers into sin, but then you have to be ruthless in your own life against sin. You have to take radical measures. And so here he talks about radical amputation, okay? Radical amputation. Um, You'll deal harshly, you'll cut off limbs, you'll pluck out eyes, whatever it takes to deal with sin. You have a desire for, for holiness and you'll do whatever it takes to get there, okay? Now this isn't some legalistic thing. You know, too many people think, boy, whenever you start talking about like this, that you get legalistic. No, this is Jesus is saying, deal ruthlessly with your sin. You do it because of Jesus, because you love him, but you deal with it. You gotta do whatever it takes, okay? Um, um, Jay Adams is a guy who's had a, a lot of, of influence in my life, I, and I, which I think is good, but he talks about this concept of radical amputation. Here's what he says. If you find yourself sinning in this area, you gotta cut off a limb so that it becomes harder to sin, right? So, so that when suddenly you are, you know, you're tempted to go that way, you've cut off your leg and so you fall over. You, because you just have a stump and you can't get there, right? If you're struggling with something, then you need to do radical amputation, get rid of it. So for example, when I'm helping guys with, who are struggling with pornography, right? So what are you gonna do to cut that off, to cut off every single, uh, try to cut off everything that will take you there? It may mean you gotta get a flip phone and you don't have access to the internet on your phone. Maybe you have to have internet access at work, okay, but right, you're not gonna be looking at that stuff at work. You'll be, you'll, it may be that if you need the internet at home, you're gonna put your computer in a wide open space in your living room or somewhere so everyone can see what you're doing, okay? Radical steps. If you love Jesus and if you want to deal with sin, you will do whatever it takes. You'll tear out your eye, you'll cut off your leg, Right, you'll chop off your hand. You're gonna do whatever it takes to deal with that sin, okay? That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Um, okay, so, um, radical amputation, radical measures. Okay, questions on that? Yes, Shelby. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's exactly right. We're, good. We're not going to draw hard lines where there's liberty, but we do where there's sin. Clearly sin. Am I understanding you right? Okay. Yeah. 
Liberties, we're not going to draw lines, right? Um, hard lines. Sin, we will. Sin, we will. We have to draw hard lines. Okay? Um, anyway, good, good. Oh, um, okay, the next disciples of Jesus are going to practice marital fidelity. All right, let's look at Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the, and in the house, the disciples asked, asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right. Now, I don't believe this, this section is intended to teach about all the ins and outs of divorce, but what should characterize a disciple's marriage. All right. Um, what does Jesus expect from his disciples with regard to marriage? Okay, so the Pharisees asked him a question, and like today, it was a hot topic. It's still a hot topic. It was a pressing question. And they bring it, the question up not for information but to test Jesus. And here he takes the opportunity to teach his disciples um, some important distinctions as followers. All right? First notice that Jesus actually changes the old covenant law. He changes it. They have to obey a different rule. Right? So the Pharisees, the issue was as long as you get the paperwork right, you're okay. As long as you go through the right channels, get the right certificate, it's okay to divorce. And he says no. And Jesus does this on his own authority, by the way. He's not referring to another rabbi. He's not referring to anything else. He says, I'm telling you this. All right now, by the way, this in itself should cause you to stop and take notice. And that is... How does he have the right to do that? Well, because he's God, and he's the final word from God. He is the final word from God. When we want to know how we ought to act or what we ought to be, we go first to Jesus, because he's the final word. And he says to us, a disciple of Jesus has to live out God's original intent for marriage. Now look, I think other passages of Scripture give exceptions to the rule, but that's not what he's doing here. The purpose here is not to give us ammunition for the question of divorce. The issue here is what's going to characterize disciples of Jesus. And what should characterize disciples of Jesus is they do not hop from one marriage to another. They don't jump around like that. In the realm of redemption, becoming a disciple of Jesus, we accomplish God's original intent. He intends for his disciples 
to accomplish God's original intent. A disciple of Jesus should have a reputation for marital fidelity. Okay? That's essentially what he's driving at. Disciples of Jesus should be known as people um, with a reputation for marital fidelity. Fidelity. Disciples who find contentment in their marriage. You know what? Let me look. I want you to look at a passage that used to puzzle me until a friend of mine named John Street helped me understand it. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, one of the weirdest passages I used to think. I used to think it was weird. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 3. Now notice what he says. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who has covetous, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I used to look at that and say, what does Thanksgiving have to do with this? Why is that there? And the answer is because, as he notes here, covetousness is at the root of um, sexual immorality, ungratefulness. Okay, when you go to Romans 1, what does it say? It says, they neither uh, recognized God nor gave thanks to him. And what happened? All these horrible, all these horrible things happened. So what I'm saying to you is adultery and sexual impurity grows out of the root of discontent or ingratitude. Why in the world would someone leave his wife and go to someone else? Here's why. Because he's not thankful for the woman that God gave him. Why would someone commit, be sexually impure outside of marriage when they're single? Because they can't say, Lord, thank you for this single state, right? This is what you think is best for me right now, so I can thank you for that. Discontent and ingratitude is at the heart of all sexual immorality. And so therefore, I think Jesus is driving at the fact that uh, divorce um, or, or Christians should be those who find contentment in their marriage with their spouse. But you don't know. You know what I say to couples a lot of times when they come to me for, for marital counseling and they're sitting there saying, you don't know what this woman is like. Well, one of my responses is, you know what? God thought that this was the perfect woman for you because he gave her to you as your wife. And she may, let's just assume for sake of argument, she may be as terrible as you're telling me. God thinks you needed her to make you like Jesus. So, what can I say? You know, be thankful. All right, questions on that? No questions. I'm always afraid when there's no questions. All right. Okay. Well, let's pray. All right. Father, thank you for uh, the time we've had in your word. Thank you that we can look into it and find uh, commandments from our Savior, from our King, that will guide us, that will help us, that will show uh, that we are the people of God. So help us to consider these things. Lord, I pray that we would consider these things this week um, and think about them in relation to where we are 
in our particular situations. Thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.